Let's continue to worship. If you'll turn with me, I'll turn on my microphone. If you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to read instructions for the church from 1 Timothy. And guys, remember, we talked about 1 Timothy was written by Paul, by the Apostle Paul, to his brother, his son, actually in the faith, uh, Timothy. And Timothy was a uh, relatively young, uh, inexperienced pastor, and the church at Ephesus was a church plant that was a little over three years old. So it was a fairly new church uh, and and a fairly new pastor. Paul founded the Ephesian church. Um, early on his third missionary journey. We can read about his time in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, if you are the kind that take notes, uh, write that down and go back and look at it later. And then in Acts 20, in verse 31, he mentions that he was there for three years. So Paul went out to Ephesus, planted a church, stayed there for three years. What a church plant that must have been. I mean, can you imagine having Paul's input on the structure and function of the church? If there was ever a perfect church constitution, I'm betting the church at Ephesus had that. You know, what about the roles and authorities of pastors and deacons? I mean, if you, if you thought you might be getting some of that wrong, you go to Paul and you say, hey, what's the deal here? How do we act? Now, I'm not saying that everything Paul ever said was infallible, right? We know that the scriptures that he wrote and that other people wrote that found it into the canon of scripture is perfect and infallible. But if you came up to him on a Tuesday and said, hey, what time is it? He might get that wrong, right? You know, we we see that they weren't always infallible. Paul and Peter had a confrontation where Paul had to correct Peter. But the writings of Scripture are perfect. But I'm betting if you had a question, you could go to Paul and say, Brother, what do you think about this? And he would take the time and effort to think through it with a mind unlike almost anybody else in history, with wisdom imparted to him by God, and he could give you that answer, right? In spite of this phenomenal start that this church plant had, Paul had to leave Timothy in Ephesus in order for him to deal with false teachers there. Can you imagine that? I mean, church folks sitting around and saying, hey, I know Paul taught this, but I have this insight that eluded him, so here's what we really need to do. Or maybe they said, I know that was his interpretation, but here's what I think. Or most likely, probably what happened is, people would say, do you know what the Holy Spirit just revealed to me? And then instead of it being something that the Holy Spirit revealed to them, it was some nonsense they made up in their head, and they would lead people astray with this false teaching. However this false teaching came about, Paul was expecting it, and he had left his trustworthy friend Timothy there to handle it. You know, while he was there, he said, look, there are going to be people that come out of your own group that will try to lead folks astray. It seems from verses in this letter... Like chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, again, if you're a note taker, 3, 11, and 5, 11 through 15, that these false teachers were particularly having influence and making inroads with some of the ladies who were in the church there. So what Paul says in this chapter may seem a bit harsh, but remember he was addressing specific things that we only can take educated guesses at. We're hearing kind of half of the conversation, right? If you were listening to one end of a phone call, 
you could pretty much piece together what's going on, but you wouldn't know exactly. And so we don't know all of what Paul knew was coming from the church of Ephesus. We just know what he was writing to them in this book. So what Paul says in this chapter uh, is a little bit harsh. And sometimes people read these things and they say, you know, I don't think Paul liked women very much. Well, that's not true. But let me tell you what Paul didn't like. Paul didn't like troublers of the church. He didn't like people who made trouble or taught false doctrine. That's what he was always opposed to, regardless of their gender. So this is a long passage, and we're going to read a bite at a time and discuss it. So if you're in 1 Timothy 5, let's read the first two verses. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You may remember that last week, Paul told Timothy not to let anyone look down on him because of his age. You know, he was, he was saying, rather than letting them look down on you on, because of your youth, what you need to do is set an example for the people. Show them an exemplary lifestyle of what a Christian ought to look like and act like and be like. And then they will respect you, even though they don't automatically respect you because of your youth. So he said, look, don't get run over. But here, balancing that don't get run over is he's saying you need to treat the folks in the church with the respect and the affection that you would have for people in your own family. So a pastor doesn't need to get run over. He needs to stick to his convictions, but he needs to treat the people with the respect that he would treat his parents with or his brother or sister with. Now, we really need to not just use this language of church family, but we really need to see one another as family. Why do you think it's so easy for people to church hop these days? Well, it's so easy because they don't have any connections. I mean, guys, it would be hard, hard for me to leave this church because there are people that I know and love in this church. And that is the tie that binds, right? It's not just, uh, you know, something like, well... The building or the music or I love our music. Music today was awesome. Uh, It is every week. But there's awesome music at a different church. It's not just that the Bible is being taught. uh, The Bible's taught at other churches. What's going to hold you to the church you're in? Well, family, right? We need to make those family connections. And we need to really see one another as family. The small group that I'm part of is close. Uh, family close even. That's the point, guys. I know that some of you have no idea why we do the small group thing. You know, you'll say, well, we have Sunday school. Why in the world do we need another, uh, another thing that is called small group? But let me tell you, it's the relationships, guys. That's why we need it. Uh, let me, I know I've told you this story before, but it so thoroughly illustrates the point of small group. Uh, there was a deacon in a former church who uh, was my friend, and I instituted small groups in this church. I wasn't the pastor, but I was uh, in charge of this discipleship stuff. So I instituted small groups. Uh, The pastor was skeptical. I said, well, just wait and see. And he said, okay. So we started going, and I got this deacon to join a small group. And he told me about a year later, he said, the only reason I joined that thing was because you asked me to, because I like you. And he said, but let me tell you my experience. There was a lady in there who was uh, an older lady, a senior adult, who never married, never had children, 
all her relatives, her close relatives had died. And she was sitting around in small group one night. And she said, I just don't know what's going to happen to me when I get to where I can't take care of myself. And that deacon friend of mine said, well, we're, of course, we're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure that things are taken care of. And he said, and then I realized I actually meant that. <laughs> you know, he said, I wasn't just saying that. I really meant that because I felt like she was my mother, my sister. You know, so this is somebody I'm responsible for and I'm going to take care of. Now, guys, that is when church becomes family. You know, uh, it was a couple of years ago now, but anyway, I, or maybe three years ago, I don't know. Uh, we can't keep up with time too good, can we? <laughs> um, I, got, I got quite sick. I was taking some medicine that, that messed me up, and my kidneys weren't working very well. And turns out you really need those. Um, you know, you read about in the Bible how uh, we are the body of Christ, and there are some parts of the body that get more attention. I mean, ladies, have, has anyone ever come up to you on Valentine's Day and said, you have beautiful eyes? Probably so. Have they ever said, you have highly functioning kidneys? No, we don't, we don't pay attention to the kidneys, right? Until they stop working and then, whoa, they get a lot of attention. So I was sick. Uh, sick enough I missed church, <laughs> which is real sick. And, uh, and Drew told me later, he said, man, I told my wife that if you needed one of my kidneys, I'd give you one. Or I'd give you both of Chris's, because Chris is his brother-in-law, right? And so that's, that's dedication. I mean, that's even more commitment on Chris's part, but that's commitment, guys. That's family closeness, guys. And now we have Jared and Courtney in there, and I'm getting to know them a lot better than I used to. I mean, I've been here for four and a half years now. I do know that date. I've been here four and a half years, and I've known Jared from day one, except I'm really getting to know Jared and Courtney now because we spend time together, we eat together, we fellowship together. You get close to people you spend time with. Now, let me ask you about this. Does that mean I have a click? Do I have a click with the younger families in this church? Because I think, well, the younger families are the most important thing in our church. No, I have a click with them because I'm in small group with them. Do you know who else I wish I was in small group with? You. (laughs) Okay? I wish I was in small group with you. But for me to be able to do that, you'd have to come. So come tonight to the Smith's house. What time are we doing it? Yes. Six. At six o'clock tonight at the Smith's house, we're going to have a small group. And we want you to come, guys. Um, Wednesday, every other Wednesday, I believe, is when they meet. What time do y'all meet? Six o'clock every other Wednesday. This Wednesday or next Wednesday? Next Wednesday. Uh, Jimmy hosts a small group. Guys, that's when you have the opportunity to make church family mean something besides this little cliche that we talk about, okay? I really hope I'm getting that across to you. Now let's take a look at verses 3 through 16. Honor widows who are truly widows. All right, let me explain the truly widows there. Guys, we're missing something in translation, okay? What that means is not that, well, if you're a widow and you're 30 years old and you've only been married for 10 years and you lose the love of your life, then that doesn't really count. That's not what he's saying, okay? He is talking about your material uh, dependence, okay? He's talking about how you're going to pay for things, how you're going to make a living. So he is not minimizing the pain of a young widow. What he's saying is, and we'll see in just a second, this has to do with livelihood and provision. You know, there weren't 
life insurance policies back then. There weren't annuities that they could fall back on. This was a, a different time. So he says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. In other words, they are following these false teachers. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The text is plain here that the children and grandchildren are to be the first to care for the widow. Do you Jackson kids hear that, right? You, you make some return to your parents, I think is what I just read, right? And so uh, that is what is pleasing in the sight of God. These widows who had no way to make a living and care for themselves were to be cared for by their families. Notice again in verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If, however, they had no biological family, then the church family was supposed to care for them. But not only widows... They were supposed to care for all who are needy in the church. Remember, there's no pensions, there's no social security, there's no life insurance. Um, This is something that was before all that, so they didn't have anything to fall back on. So the really needy people in the church, let's see what James says about them. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're to take care of those in the church who cannot care for themselves. There are, though, some notable restrictions that we need to understand. Let me make clear that the Bible never tells us to financially take care of those who can financially take care of themselves, but are too lazy to do so. Paul makes that clear in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11. He says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, right? It doesn't say anyone who can't work, anyone's unable to work. It says, if you are not willing to work, then let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now those folks, we are supposed to have the discernment not to support. I think it's a very important principle for us to learn. You know, we want to show people the love of Jesus, but we don't want to be the, the suckers who enable people to live a lifestyle of slothfulness. That's not beneficial to them. And I think the Bible is pretty clear on that. Now, I know some people call that mean-spirited conservatism. It's not. It's biblical wisdom that's given to us. We see that there is this restriction that we're not to financially help people who can support themselves but will not do so. Are there other restrictions that we should observe? There are. The believer ought to act like a believer. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children... Now, I really don't think the point here is that she has to have had a child, right? Because the most destitute widows is going to be like that person I talked about earlier that, that didn't have any family, didn't have any children, never married. Um, she wasn't a widow, but she was in a position of not having anybody to depend on, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean, man, you can't, you can't support them if they didn't have biological children. It's just this is a list of things that Christian women do. Uh, you know, they're going to be caring for those kids in the church. All right. Has brought up children has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. The widow that the church supports financially should be someone who has blessed and contributed to the church. Now, what is this business about being enrolled? Okay. It says, but refuse to enroll younger. What's the enrollment? Well, uh, there are two opinions on it. One is that it's an, an enrollment on a list that perhaps is for benevolence. You know, we're going we're gonna to sign up these people that need financial assistance. And then on this other list, um, the other idea is that enrollment means a position, a, an official kind of position in the church to be in a ministry of intercessory prayer. Let me read from you. Uh, this is from Exalting Jesus in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, it's written by David Platt, Danny Aiken, and Tony Marita. It says, verse 9 talks about widows who are to be enrolled, and there's some debate about whether he is referring to enrolling widows on a support list or referring to how older widows can be enrolled in unique service to the church. This latter is the majority view of biblical scholars, and it seems to be warranted by the context of what Paul is addressing here. He is calling older widows to serve in the church, and much like what we saw in chapter 3 concerning elders and deacons, he's putting qualifications on those who might serve in this capacity. Now, if this is the case, and I believe that it is, then verses 11 and 12 make sense in light of this calling to serve the church in a specific capacity. Uh, verse 11 and 12 say, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ... They desire to marry. So that's, that's not good, right? It sounds like widows who desire to marry are leaving the faith. Well, that is not what it means, and I can promise you it's not what it means, because a couple of verses later, Paul says, hey, I think younger widows ought to remarry. So we have to say, well, what does it mean? Uh, verse 12 says, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, they aren't abandoning the faith in, in leaving Christianity, okay, if they desire to remarry. We know that because in verse 14, in just a second, I'll show you that Paul recommends they do remarry. So what would be abandoned if 
we enrolled them in this official capacity of intercessory prayer in the church is that if they enrolled in that and they said, hey, I want to work in the church. I want to, I want to be someone who is involved daily, hourly in intercessory prayer in the church. And then later on they change their mind. They say, mm, never mind, I, I want to go get married. Then that is what he's talking about. He's, uh, they're abandoning that commitment that they made. So what he says, you know, this reminds me of uh, Luke 2, 36 and 37. We read about a widow like this who lives and serves in the temple. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. So this lady was, you know, maybe she was 17 when she got married, lived with her husband for seven years. At 24 to 84, she's been serving in the temple. As I mentioned a moment ago, verse 14 and 15 say this. This is when Paul says, hey, you should get married. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Now, apparently some of these widows had nothing better to do than listen to these false teachers. And Paul was saying, hey, you need, to, you need something better to do than that. I recommend you marry again. So this passage on just a brief reading can be a little bit confusing because he says, hey, if you desire to remarry, you shouldn't be enrolled because you're going to leave Christ, right? And you go, wow, okay, so I'm not supposed to remarry. And then a couple of verses later it says, hey, I recommend you remarry. So what this is saying is, I believe that there is, a, there is a place for widows to be supported by the church who don't have any other means of support. And they can dedicate themselves to a ministry of intercessory prayer. And they can do that. And once they do that, they're not supposed to look back. This lady served in that capacity for decades. But Paul is saying, hey, just in case you were to decide, hey, I, I want to marry, we don't want to enroll you in this kind of service if you're a younger widow because you may desire to marry. Is all this making sense? We we tracking along here? <laughs> all right, I hope so. Now, our widows and widowers, guys, what a blessing it would be if you would commit yourself to intercessory prayer in our church. Now, I know, uh, well, first of all, let me say this. If you are a widow here and you need financial help, we don't know unless you tell us, Okay. Um, but most of you don't. Most of you have pensions, retirement, life insurance, that kind of thing. And so what would be a beautiful, wonderful ministry for you would be to be involved in intercessory prayer here. Now, you don't have to come to the church building to pray for the church, but if you wanted to, I would welcome you. From 8 to 2, Monday through Thursday, our office is open. You can come in and you can walk around and you can pray. From 8 to 12 on Friday, our office is open. If, if we had folks that don't have to be, you know, bur- burdened with the daily uh, tasks of earning a living or keeping up with kids or whatever, if you wanted to come up here and pray, man, that would be a blessing. Let me tell you what I'd love for you to pray for. Pray for better preaching. <laughs> that won't insult me. I'll love it. Um, I heard of a guy this past week who preached a good sermon and then somebody came up to him and said, that was a good sermon. And he said, it was all the Lord. And the other guy said, it wasn't that good. All right? It wasn't that good. You know? And so until we get that good, 
Pray for the preaching, okay? Um, Look, pray for people. We need people in here. Pray for people. Uh, Guys, we need obedience. Um, I know people look at me like I've got three heads when I say this, but we don't need a new vision. We need to obey the old vision that God gave us called the Great Commission. We need to individually witness to those around us. We need to take the gospel to that 64% of Jones County that has no affiliation with the church. Because guys, if you have no affiliation with the church, there's a 99.9% chance you have no affiliation with the head of the church. All right? We need to share the gospel individually. Pray that we'll be obedient there. Uh, There are so many things you can pray for. So seriously, if somebody will take me up on this, or some bodies will take me up on this, it would be such a blessing to our church if some of our widows and widowers would come in here. You don't have to come in here again, but it'd be awesome. You come, you stand right here. You grab this podium and you pray for the preacher, okay? You walk around here and you pray for the people. Now, Paul doesn't tell the church to take care of every widow on the planet. Um, it's, that's a noble but completely unrealistic goal. We can't do that. What he says is we need to take care of our own first. Your stewardship team, uh, who is here, and I won't point them all out because I'll forget somebody your stewardship team wisely set aside some of our church's benevolence specifically to be used for our own people and the reason they did that is to honor this teaching okay we are to take care of the folks inside the family first and then it's great if we can take care of people outside the family verses 17 to 20 deal with how the church is to treat its elders or pastors okay and um, I think the biblical model for elders is with an S on there, is for elders to be in the church. Uh, we are small enough that we are unable to do that right now with the current structure we have. So I'm the uh, guy that's functioning in that role. But it said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages is clear. Now, what's this stuff about an ox? Well, if you have an ox uh, walking around on this grain and crushing the grain and getting the husks off the grain, he's going to stop every now and then and take a bite, and that's okay. You don't muzzle him. You let him do that, because after all, he's working. So we're to honor a pastor who rules well, and we're to pay the pastor. Now, we already do that. You score a 100% on that. Uh, So the only reason I'm bringing it up is because Paul brings it up. But I'm quick to tell you if there's stuff we need to work on, this is not one. We're doing great. The next verse is about honoring your elder by protecting him against false charges. And this, this is important. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Satan loves to see pastors fall. But if he can't get a pastor to fall, the second best thing is to make an accusation against the pastor. You guys remember Brett Kavanaugh? (laughs) All right. (coughs) Extremely unlikely in my mind that the man did anything he was accused of doing and completely impossible that he did everything he was accused of doing. It got crazier and crazier, right? Uh, So people will say what they want to say to bring somebody down. And Paul says, we can't do that in the church. We can't ruin somebody over 
unfounded allegations. We have to be careful how we bring an accusation against an elder. On the other hand, when the pastor is proven to have fallen and he's in sin that he will not repent of, that has to be dealt with by the church rather than swept under the rug. Verse 20 says, As for those who persist in sin, and again, not those who sin or, Woo, y'all have to fire me and you couldn't hire anybody else either because we all sin, right, occasionally. Uh, a whole lot more occasionally than I wish I did. But those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Guys, churches do injury to innocent people when they find that their pastor is in immorality and then they let him resign and go on to the next church without warning the next church. That may seem like the nice thing to do, but it is not. It is reckless and unloving to set your wolf in sheep's clothing loose in another pasture, right? We can't do that. Guys, we Southern Baptists have done that in the past, and uh, Lord willing, we will never do such a thing here. Uh, if, if and when the church has to discipline an elder and fire an elder, you make sure that you don't let him get a job down the road because he's going to do to them what he did to you. So we need to protect our elders from false accusations. But when they are in sin and they are corrupt and they are unrepentant, we need to protect everybody else. So this is how we're supposed to act in the church. Paul gives us some very practical, very applicable things. The thing I want to go back to for a second, though, is all this is done in a family relationship. Uh, Guys, if you don't see yourself as family here, then there's no reason to be here. You can be at a church that's closer to your house. Or you can be at a church that is growing faster. Or you can be at a church where the music guy wears skinny jeans or whatever. (laughs) Right? We need family relationships. We need family bonds. And I'm telling you, the best place... And look, I've, I've done Sunday school. I've done church. I've done small group. And I can tell you, the best way to build those family relationships is you get in one of these small groups. Um... Has it been a blessing to you, brother? It has been a blessing to those who who try it. Uh, Now, if you want to sit back and say, I have no experience, but I already know that that won't work. (laughs) Well, that's, that's silly. Don't do that. Instead, come and try it and see if you don't build some of those really close relationships. Guys, we got to look out for one another. Some of us, we have a lot of widows in this church. We need widows with a church family, a real church family. Come and be part of us in, in those small groups. Let me tell you what holds us together. Guys, we've got, um, we've got a lot of different ages in this church. We have some different socioeconomic levels in this church. What holds us together is the gospel. And the gospel is that we have, we've sinned. We've rebelled against God. But God, in his amazing, incomprehensible mercy, has fixed that problem for us by sending his son to live a life that we couldn't live, that we should have lived, that we were responsible to live, but that we couldn't live, and to die a death that we did deserve, and he didn't. And he's willing to trade his perfection to your account for your sin that will be put on his account, which was paid at Calvary. So guys, if you're here and you say, I want to be part of a family, I want to be connected, Well, entrance into the family is entrance into the family of God, which is through the gospel.
So if you're here and you're, you're saying, I'm not 100% sure that I am even a child of God, much less a brother and sister to you guys. Well, come up and we'll talk about that. 